Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, schools are out for summer, so is Parliament, but the Prime Minister is also out of self-isolation, and this week he marked two years in the job, with MPs retreating back to their constituencies and many trying to have whatever summer COVID and the weather will allow. The government now has a chance to take stock. So it's a great chance for us at the Institute for Government to take stock as well. Boris Johnson is already trying to reset after a bumpy few weeks, rising COVID cases, falling poll numbers. What are the problems he needs to fix? We're going to discuss the big issues that have dominated the last few months, the winners and the losers, and the lessons for government. And with the government delaying policy decisions on social care and pensions until the autumn, and much of its manifesto still to take shape, what are the big topics we should expect to dominate when Parliament and the ever-eventful party conference season returns in September? Will it be what the government wants or what it can no longer avoid? Well, to delve into all of this, I've got a fantastic IFG team with me. Hannah White's our Deputy Director, leads our work on Parliament. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for coming. Alex Thomas leads our programme on the Civil Service. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. Hi, great to have you with us. Tom Pope's our Deputy Economist on our Public Finances team. Tom, thanks for joining. Hi, Bronwyn. Good to have you. And Joe Marshall is Senior Researcher on our Brexit team. Joe, hi. Great to join you, Bowman. Great to have you all here. Well, let's start with some reflections. It's been, again, a hectic few months. We've gone from full lockdown to Freedom Day. We've got a new Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, but still no social care policy. World leaders arrived in Cornwall for a COVID-busting G7, but much of the world remains shut for British holidaymakers, though that may finally be changing. So much we could discuss, but we need to keep it down somehow. So I'm going to ask each of you what top issue you think has dominated the last few months. And then I want to hear who or what you think has been the big winner and who's been the loser. Alex, can we start with you? You've helped us cover a huge range of issues from COVID policy to the resignation of Matt Hancock, the effectiveness of Johnson's number 10, and of course, plans to reform government. What has stood out for you the most? I think it's hard. I mean, all all of the above, but it's hard to get beyond COVID and particularly the exit strategy. I mean, thinking about this, the date that seems really significant to me, and I did have to check, is the 22nd of February, which was when the government published its exit plan and those dates that we all became very familiar with and the data, indeed, that they said were driving it rather than the dates. And it felt the reason I pick up on that, partly, obviously, COVID uh, will run through the conversation, but also because that seemed to reflect a move from number 10 and the government as a whole from the chaos and confusion that had characterised decision making uh, up to that point to a much more sort of ordered, planned approach. Uh, I also think looking back, it's almost hard to remember now just how grim January and February were. Obviously, the COVID case numbers, but also there'd been the Christmas break that wasn't and then uh, children going back to school that then happened for one day. But then from that sort of late February date, it felt like we had a plan, a sense of direction. Number 10 uh, and the government's communications almost sort of calmed down and the route out with a few glitches, obviously, and uh, not for a moment suggesting everything has gone right. But things calmed down. There was a plan. The government stuck to it and uh, I think made generally for the last sort of four or five months for, for better, more effective government. So you're cautiously giving the government actually quite good grades, at least for this year. 
I think for those months of this year, I think there's obviously all sorts of points that we uh, we could make and, and have made about some of the contradictions in the COVID policy, um, particularly mixed messaging at, at, at times uh, and, and the grip they've got. But if you, I think, taking a step back and even, uh, you know, obviously all this sits alongside the vaccination plan and the vaccination rollout, which has by any measure, at least up to this point, been a success, although the rest of the world is rather catching up with us now. I would say that the test of government of, uh, uh, you know, looking after the safety security of the population and citizens uh, and having a plan executing it um, uh, was pretty good you know sort of you know b b plus maybe all right so who or what is your winner i'm really talking about the last few months I think I'll go with the obvious. I toyed with sort of winner being the vaccinators and uh, and the NHS and and the loser being Dominic Cummings and his fall from grace. But I'm going to go with the obvious, which is my winner is the current health secretary and my loser is the former health secretary because Sajid Javid uh, as the uh, incoming health secretary, I think if we assume and hope that the uh, worst of the pandemic is over uh, actually has a really good political opportunity now to paint himself as the you know one of the faces of of, of opening up and success. Matt Hancock, for all the criticism that you might make of him, uh, a little bit of me has to feel a bit sorry for the guy who's been health secretary through this horrific pandemic. And just as things hopefully start to uh, look up a little bit, uh, loses his job thanks to his own uh, foolishness. People being sorry for Matt Hancock is not the loudest noise in Westminster, <laughs> I, thought, I have to I say. It's a bit controversial. <laughs> I expect that sympathy. Uh, Hannah, can I bring you in here? And just before we go on to your patch, which is Parliament, what do you think of what Alex has just said? Well, I think he's right. I mean, I think I'm not going to surprise anyone when I say that the the, the issue that's dominated uh, Parliament as well is has been COVID. I think it is fair to say that the government seems to have got more of a grip since um, sort of February onwards. Uh, and I think that that roadmap really helped everyone get sort of purchase on what to expect. And then the fact that it actually the the the, the facts bore out enabling that that roadmap to be followed until we got right to the end of it you know really helped that sense of there have having been a plan and a plan that could be followed I think from a parliamentary point of view we haven't seen such a good performance from the government though in the sense of uh, involving parliament in the whole process which I can say a bit more about if you if you'd like I would in fact I'd like you to do just that I mean how do you think parliament has done as opposed to the government having having done well, Parliament has been completely dominated by COVID. I would say it's been really hard to get purchase on on other issues and to get uh, MPs who uh, many of whom are still, you know, not able to be present in Westminster and so on to to, to raise other issues up the agenda. Even though the government has been trying to get back uh, to some of its other. Uh, manifesto uh, interest and, and issues. I mean, there have been lots of select committee inquiries into COVID. There has been, you know, a new committee set up in the Lords specifically to look at life after COVID and so on. But the the big issue really has been the, the difficulty for Parliament in being able to to get government to engage with that. The government, uh, Parliament, has neither been able to persuade. You know, there were lots of people in in Parliament arguing, as the Institute has that a public inquiry into COVID needs to happen sooner rather than later. The government's now committed to that, but not until uh, there's a bit not to set it up until early next year. Parliament hasn't been able to persuade government to do that any sooner. Neither has it been able to uh, get government to engage with its own scrutiny. One of the things Boris Johnson said was, well, you know, there's plenty of other people doing scrutiny in the meantime, so it doesn't matter if we don't have the inquiry until next year. But actually, we've just seen a... a, a spate of reports from different committees expressing their frustration with uh, the fact that government ministers have not engaged with the uh, 
inquiry work that they've been trying to do. We've seen a report from uh, the, the Lords on that. We've seen the PAC in the Commons um, talk about that. So right. it's really that's and, and we've seen Lindsay Hoyle, the Commons Speaker, uh, really get frustrated with the way in which uh, the government's been prioritising making announcements in the media um, and not uh, before the House of Commons, which would normally be uh, the way things should be done. So is there anything Parliament can do about this? Or is it, is it just what happens when there's a big majority? Well, it's not necessarily what happens when there's a big majority. It depends on the attitude that the government takes. So we are obviously in different and exceptional circumstances in terms of the, the situation that the government's having to deal with. But there are lots of political choices the government has made about what it announces where and when. And I think early in the pandemic, it was totally justifiable to say, you know, we need to get on and do some stuff and we can't always tell Parliament first. But more recently, um, that excuse is just not there any longer. Um, and I think it's really time that the government had a reset on this and acknowledged that actually there are some really important conventions around announcing things first to the democratically elected House so that there's an opportunity for, for questioning to happen, not just in the relatively superficial way that it can happen in a government press conference. Okay, government versus acknowledgement of important conventions. The conventions haven't come off terribly well so far. Who's your winner? Who's your loser? So I think, as I, I've been obviously saying, I think the losers are MPs and peers. You know, they've they've tried to get purchase on on COVID, but they've really not succeeded and and haven't been able to do much about that. In terms of winners, I would say the winners have been government and opposition whips. They currently have pocketfuls of hundreds of proxy votes, which they're able to exercise on behalf of their members. Because uh, if you don't want to come in and vote in person in the House of Commons uh, these days, you can get a proxy vote in order to do that and ask your whip to vote on your behalf. So the pandemic has really put a lot of uh, power in the hands of the party whips. And that's something which I'll be very pleased to see revert to to, to normal come come autumn, except in the circumstances of uh, you know people who have really good reasons to be absent. All right. So uh, party whips are your winners and your losers are all the members of parliament. <laughs> Many of them. Okay. Joe, where would we be without, without team Brexit? You don't have to answer that question. It doesn't seem to be a quiet time for you, though. What's been your big issue? Well, I was going to say Brexit never seems to be too far away, even when everyone's attention has been on COVID. And I think the issue I was going to raise is really the Northern Ireland protocol and the sort of outstanding issues around that. And I think it's a really good illustration of how, you know, in the sort of rhetoric around Brexit being done, actually, you know, big parts of the UK's relationship with the EU are still to be fully resolved. And, uh, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol was the part of a Brexit agreement that was supposed to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland by keeping Northern Ireland aligned with many EU rules on goods. But that effectively led to a trade and regulatory border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And the full force of that border hasn't taken effect yet because of various grace periods that were agreed and some unilaterally extended by the UK government. Um, and there's been lots of back and forth between the UK and the EU about this over the last few months. And it all sort of came to a head last week when we had this command paper from the UK government effectively saying the Northern Ireland Protocol, as we agreed, isn't working. It is causing problems on the ground in Northern Ireland. It's causing tensions that we didn't expect or want um, and effectively saying we want to renegotiate large parts of it. And I, I, I think I was reading some of the commentary around it and I think someone described it as... Um, reading a little bit like a uh, a client's letter to their divorce lawyer. It was a long list of grievances about, you know, what was going wrong, all of these problems, blaming lots of people. You know, it was Theresa May's fault. It was the last parliament's fault. It was the EU's fault. 
slightly neglecting the fact it was this UK government that signed up to the Northern Ireland Protocol and agreed to implement it. So I think we've got this difficult difficult problem here where there are some legitimate concerns about how the Northern Ireland Protocol is operating, but it's not clear that the UK government's approach, which seems to be sort of raising various concerns, some of which are longstanding about moving food from Great Britain to Northern Ireland or medicines, but also seeming to move the goalposts and raising new grievances that we thought were settled about the governance of the arrangement and the role of the European Court of Justice. Some of those sort of things, we don't know really whether you know, the UK government is really taking the most constructive approach to trying to find a solution. I think what we're seeing here really is we're going to need both sides to compromise on both the substance, but I think before that on the rhetoric as well. And the UK government sort of came out punching with the command paper. I think the EU has been quite measured in its response. It held out an olive branch by pausing some of the legal cases against the UK earlier this week. So I, I think that's sort of a big problem that's emerged and will set us up for some more problems in the future. So you describe it beautifully and what's on each side, but I'm not clear which which one you're going to call a winner and which a loser. Well, I think it's really hard to say. I think both sides have a point, to be quite honest. Um, right, but you, you, have to, you have to, for the purposes of this, you have to pick a winner <laughs> and a loser. It doesn't have to be from those two. Bring in, bring in more players. Yeah. Bring in more players. I think my winners and losers, I think are staying on the Northern Ireland point, um, my loser from this, I think, is the Democratic Unionist Party. And I think my winners and losers are really people who had certain cards who perhaps didn't play them very well. So the Democratic Unionist Party had a good hand to play. They played an unexpectedly strong hand a, a few years ago. Remarkably badly. Uh, yes, exactly. And I think you know, they've had a toy time over the last few months. They had a very short new leader in Edwin Poops. And I think they're in a really difficult place where you know they are facing a lot of turmoil internally, but can't really afford the Northern Ireland executive to fall because they can't really afford an election. And I think it raises really important questions about what happens to that sort of unionist vote and sort of politics in Northern Ireland, whether or not we see a a resurgence of the Ulster Unionist Party, whether or not we see rise in support for the Alliance Non-Aligned Party. So I think DUP are definitely my loser. And I think picking up on some of Hannah's points, one of my winners I was going to point out really is... You're only allowed one winner. One winner. My winner was... I think, whilst Hannah is right that MPs have really struggled to sort of get purchase on COVID, I do think it's really fascinating how the sort of COVID recovery group and that sort of group of backbench Conservative MPs have been able to exert influence over the government and put pressure, particularly around sort of Freedom Day and the sort of questions around COVID vaccine passports, for instance. I think Alex has raised this in previous podcasts. And I think it's really fascinating how it's a similar group of people to sort of the European research group who, expert, who put so much pressure on Theresa May over the Brexit process and shaped this hard Brexit. And I think it's fascinating how, despite the very different parliamentary arithmetic now and Boris Johnson on paper seemingly having this big majority, you're still having to think very carefully about mm. that sort of parliamentary management. Okay, do you want to name one of them just to... I mean, I think, you know, with various, various, Steve Baker playing a, a big role, various others as well. There he is. I wasn't going to put uh, put the words into your mouth, but <laughs> but there they are. Okay, great. So we've got Steve Baker and Tom. Let's come back to high seriousness. Um, sorry, not that the uh, Brexit and the um, um, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol are not uh, not deeply serious, but to just take it forward a bit to the autumn and the finances. The public finances are always on our minds, and the Chancellor's. What for you has really been the top issue in the last few months? It's, it's always amazing, I think, how quickly, particularly on the economy, how quickly narratives um, can move on and the situation can move on. And I was just thinking back where where we were a few months ago. And actually, I'd have been 
really surprised if you told me that the recovery was going to be going as well as it is at this point. Economic forecasters are upgrading their forecasts left, right and centre. The number of people on the furlough scheme keeps falling. It's now less than 2 million people who are being supported by the furlough scheme. And about half of those are part furloughed, which means they are doing some work and they're not fully furloughed. And that's really significant, I think, partly because you know the, how good the recovery is is going to have a massive impact on what the public finances look like going forwards. Um, and I think the, the strength of the recovery so far, as I said, has been very surprising. It's reflected the success of, of the vaccine rollout. And there was the delay to the 21st of June reopening, but now all, all restrictions on the economy have lifted. The narrative has been slightly tempered in the last few weeks by the impact of the, the pandemic on, on certain groups, on certain groups of workers, which has put pressure on some businesses. But the overall narrative of the last three months is that the economy is in a much better pos- position than anyone really would have expected at this stage. And that will make the government's decisions slightly easier going forward as well. Right. And we've got the International Monetary Fund saying that Britain may have one of the fastest growth rates uh, in the coming year of, of developed countries, partly because of its vaccine success. Yes, that's right. I mean, partly also because we, we had one of the bigger falls in GDP last year. So it's uh, we've got further to go just to get back to our, our pre-COVID level. But the Bank of England now expects that um, by the start of next year, we'll be back to our pre-COVID level in terms of the size of the economy. That's much better than than what was expected before. And, and yes, our vaccine rollout has been a success. Um, take-up's very high relative to other countries. If that can continue and the economy can stay open from now on, then I think there are reasons to be very optimistic on, um, on, the, on the economy side. Well, we'll come back to that point in, in, in a moment. But just looking back over the last few months, again, winners and losers. Yeah, so my, my winner, I think, is, is the Treasury, both because they'll be very pleased with the improvement in the economy, but also because there have been a few uh, side skirmishes, I think, uh, between number 10 and number 11, arm wrestles about can we spend more? Do we need to be more fiscally conservative? And I think on the whole, the Treasury have got the better of those battles over number 10. In terms of a, a loser, I mentioned that use of the furlough scheme is going down really quickly, but actually that's not true across the country. And one really striking thing is if you look at use of furlough now, it remains much higher in London than other parts of the country. And actually, this isn't really a a cities versus other places split. It really is a London versus other places split. So I think there are certain workers in in particular sectors like hospitality and, and the arts in London that really rely on that high central London footfall that are not yet experiencing the recovery that the other bits of the country are. So they'd be my losers. Really interesting. So them rather than London. Well, I, th- I think we've we've seen throughout the pandemic, haven't we? It has quite unequal effects. Um, so I wouldn't want to say that everyone uh, in London is losing. And I think it's too soon to, to start saying that the city is is going to to die or be be less of a of an economic powerhouse going forwards. But certainly, there are certain workers in London who have had a very tough time of it. All right. Well, thanks. And we'll pick up some of those points in a moment looking at the future. But I'm struck no no one's picked the Prime Minister. Hannah, how do you think he's been doing? Bumpy week in the polls. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's certainly been some signs in recent weeks that he's been trying to sort of seize the agenda back from from COVID, having sort of got Freedom Day sort of done. Um, we've seen a series of announcements about different policy initiatives on, on law and order and so on in, in, this, in the last couple of weeks. So there's certainly a sense that the government's trying to restore a sense of, of normality. And I think, to be honest, the the sort of the glow from the vaccination uh, program is is still uh, still attached to the prime minister. I think you know, in comparison to to other countries internationally, that the UK is still perceived to have done relatively well. I guess it's all just risk now for the prime minister. Um, you know, he's he's done this really quite bold thing in terms of opening the country up quite dramatically, and certainly in comparison to other countries, the figures of the last week or so seem to seem to, to look good, but we don't know how this latest opening up is going to affect those figures. And come the autumn, with you know the, the weather closing in again, people spending more time inside, and potential for you know flu and so on to also start in, having an impact on the NHS, we'll start to see whether that was the right decision, and he really can move on to to sort of next steps and 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 the, the government's wider agenda, or whether he's going to be battling justifying these decisions that he's made in the summer. Let's turn to our second section, which is um, looking forward for the next few months and what the autumn might bring. Uh, the government gave us some hints uh, in the final days of Parliament of what it intends. It made an announcement on uh, that it was going to make an announcement on plans for social care, including how this was going to be paid for. And we know that the Climate Summit COP26 is going to be a big feature there's going to be the, um, the if, you might, if you call it the, the political punctuation mark that is the party conference season and keep an eye out for lots of our events there. So these are the things that we can see coming, but let's try and dig a little bit below the surface and see what's going to be coming right up to the end of, of 2021. Tom, you, you were beginning indeed to talk about the future. So let's let's go there. Is the economy and public finances the big row of the autumn? I think it's certainly a big row. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to others to, to perhaps propose other, other rows that they think might be even greater. But yeah, it's going to be a really big autumn for, for the public finances for, for the Treasury because we've got the comprehensive spending review setting the budgets for all of the departments for the next three years. Really big question there about how tight the settlement is going to be. The, the latest proposals from the Treasury, which came in March, implied... Small increases in in spending for for departments, but really only very small increases, and that wasn't allowing for any carryover spending as a result of the pandemic. And I think one of the big issues for the the spending review is going to be dealing with the the aftermath, the the wreckage in some public services that COVID has left, because there are really big backlogs in in the NHS that are well documented, also in the court system, and there's been a loss of education in the schools. And if you want to reverse these impacts, if you want to improve the performance of these services, that costs money. And at the moment, the the settlement that the Treasury is going in with probably isn't enough money to deal with that. And then you throw on top of that plans for social care and other pressures that might come along. At the end of September, there's supposed to be uh, the end of the temporary uplift to universal credit. I suspect that will also be um, a big a big battle that the government has on its hands. So, r- really, on the 
on the public finances, I think that this autumn will will define a lot of where where we're going for the next few years. Great. Well, uh, the autumn where the Chancellor tries to say no, and we see whether the Prime Minister will wear it or not. Um, Joe, let's, let's turn back to what you were saying. What are you going to be looking out for? Well, I think the thing I was going to point out for autumn really is I think the union and the various issues around the union are going to start really coming up the agenda. So not only do we have sort of resolution of issues around Northern Ireland Protocol coming to a head when various grace periods come to an end at the start of October and questions about just how far the UK government is willing to go to sort of preserve Northern Ireland, Great Britain trade. But I think there's also other issues around the second independence referendum, for instance, where we know following the devolved elections in May that the Scottish government will want to hold another independence referendum. They'll have to request the powers to do so from the Westminster government. So far, Nicola Sturgeon sort of held off and said they need to focus on the COVID recovery and the pandemic. But as COVID hopefully recedes, there's going to be more pressure to call for that second referendum, those powers to hold it. And I think that's going to raise some difficult challenges for the UK government in how it responds to that. We also know that we've got various sort of post-Brexit trade deals on the horizon, uh, we're expecting sort of further detail on the Australia trade deal later in the year. And we know that that's already posed some problems about certain sectors of the economy, particularly farmers being exposed to competition from imports produced to different standards. And we know the farming lobby is very strong in Wales and Scotland. And so that could pose some issues. And another issue there as well is that we know the UK government is keen to start exercising its post-Brexit regulatory freedoms. But we know that that could cause some tension with the devolved administrations who also have a lot of post-Brexit powers they may want to exercise in a different way. And my colleagues Jess and Maddie have written about the tensions that could cause in managing the UK internal market and that that balance between frictionless trade in the UK internal market and the regulatory autonomy of the different players. So I think the union and various issues related to it are going to come up the agenda whether or not the UK government wants to deal with them or not. Really good point. Thank you very much indeed for that. Hannah, given all of this, is it going to be a bumpy time for Johnson in Parliament? Well, I think it's going to be a really interesting time in Parliament. We are going to see the return of in-person proceedings. And whereas we've got a whole ta- intake of, of MPs who came in in 2019, um, who, who barely had any sort of in-person time in Westminster before the pandemic struck, we're now going to be back in a situation where we've got a PMQs in the chamber, we're actually going to see Johnson having to perform against Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer having to perform against Boris Johnson. We're going to see committees um, coming back in, in the House as well. Um, and, you know, thinking about the, the sort of performances that Boris Johnson's done uh, before the Liaison Committee have all been sort of online ones. But we're going to see committees coming back who've never actually met each other in person before. So that's going to be a real change in, in, in Parliament. But yeah, I think it's going to be almost like the start of a, of a new parliament uh, in, in the sense of seeing how those dynamics work out actually within the Palace of Westminster when people are eyeball to eyeball in the chamber. Really, really interesting. And you were just talking about Keir Starmer. What's he going to be trying to do? Well, I think, you know, he, what he's got to do really at this stage in the parliament is, is start to establish himself and establish his, you know, what he stands for and get Labour and Labour's sort of platform and key ideas established in the, in the eyes of the population. It's been very difficult with COVID being so dominant and it being, you know, quite difficult for any opposition party, I think, to know quite how to, to intervene 
um, and, you know, not wanting to set public health messages off course in any way, because those are the ones that, you know, the government is trying to determine and to deliver and not wanting to sort of disrupt that, while also wanting to differentiate yourself is has been really, really difficult for the opposition, I think. But I think there's a real urgency now for, for Keir Starmer to start establishing himself and establishing the Labour Party and what it stands for, because we could be looking uh, you know, at an election once the Fixed Term Parliaments Act is finally done for, you know, as early as 2023, I should think. And so there isn't much time left. Really important point. So, Alex, can you bring this all together for us? What What are you looking forward to in terms of what the government might do? So I think the well, the first point I'd make is that the context will be set by the polling. I mean, this goes a, a, a bit to what Hannah was saying and also what you were talking about with in terms of the whether the prime minister is a winner or a loser. But I think how he does, how the Conservative Party and the government does in the polls will set the tone for a lot of the autumn. And obviously, the better the government does, the more political capital the prime minister and the government will have to, to spend. I, I also think before we even get to the autumn, there's every chance of a, a long, hot or perhaps wet and quite difficult summer for the government. So criminal barristers are threatening to strike. The police are sounding increasingly hacked off with the government. There's the opportunity, the, the NHS is wrung out and despite some of the pay uplifts that have been announced, um, is it is looking pretty fragile. Uh, add to that with people coming out for the first time for a long time, COVID and you might have increase in, uh, in crime or civil unrest. And then uh, I think once we're there, uh, if, as we all hope, and as we're saying, uh, the uh, pandemic starts to recede, I would expect pol- politics and policy to start to unfreeze and all these very difficult uh, uh, debates. T- Tom was talking about the, the money, but you also mentioned uh, social care, um, planning reform are going to start to reemerge and, and, and cause uh, some real difficulties for the government, I think. So uh, politics as as normal, and it's not going to be comfortable, not least for the reason that um, I think Joe was making about the uh, organisation and the power of uh, backbenchers, the, the government's majority might start to to look pretty fragile. Final point is we haven't talked much about foreign affairs. Um, you mentioned the Conference of the Parties, the Climate Change Conference. That's going to be a really important moment, uh, huge reputational consequences for the government after a, um, a not terribly impressive G7 meeting earlier in the year. We've also got German elections coming up. So a new German chancellor, which will be a really uh, significant moment in European politics. So lots, lots to keep us busy. Lots and lots. Politics unfreezing as the temperature drops. Well, thank you very much indeed for that. And thank you all of you, because that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing, which is the last regular one of this summer. My huge thanks to Hannah White, Alex Thomas, Tom Pope and Joe Marshall. If you enjoyed this podcast, do head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. You can listen back to my interview with Sir Jeremy Farrow, the boss of Welcome, the Welcome Trust on COVID, the role of science and much more. And do check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Parliament might be away for the summer, but don't worry, inside briefing in the general sense is going nowhere. Our regular weekly discussion will pause, but we've got some really special episodes and some very special guests, a kind of IFG variety show, if you like, coming your way to keep you busy, whether you're on the beach, in the office, or, I guess, in self-isolation. Have a good summer.